Well, good morning, Woodlands Church. Hope you're doing well. Um, we get to start a new series uh, this morning. We get to start uh, talking about my absolute favorite thing to talk about in the entire world, um, which is the Bible and how God reveals himself in his word. A couple of weeks ago was Christmas. It wasn't too long ago. I keep telling my kids they only have to wait 12 more months for Christmas because it was so close. Um, but as, as our family celebrated Christmas, perhaps this is going to resonate with some of you, uh, we have extended family who come in and celebrate Christmas with us. So uh, Heather's parents, my wife's parents, drive down. They live in Merrill. They come for a couple of days, usually extended family come in too. And then my mom comes too. And tell me if this experience is the same for you. Whenever our parents come to our house, this is a tricky line of conversation. I'm going to be careful here. Um, whenever our parents come to our house, they bring with them relics from the past. They, they, somehow our parents have memory boxes of our stuff from when I was a third grader, from when I was a first grader. There's newspaper clippings, there's report cards, there's notes I wrote to my mom when I was six. And it's Christmas time when I want those or at least I get those at Christmas time. And so Heather's mom came down this past Christmas, and she brought with her one of the relics of Heather's childhood, which actually turned out to be an entire treasure. Um, I don't know if you can see this. Disney's magic eye. Does anybody remember the magic eye? Uh, these crazy pictures from the 90s, you can tell it's old. Um, and there's these, these, these crazy weird pictures that, that don't look like anything but when you look at them in a certain way, if you're familiar with Magic Eye, there's these 3D images hidden here in this jumble of shapes that just pops off the page. And they've been so cool over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Heather and Layla and Eden and I, my kids, were, were huddled in the reading room like, like at night, just staring at these pictures, waiting for these 3D images to pop out of the page. It's been so neat. I remember for myself a magic eye moment that I had with Scripture. It's probably about 18 years ago. It was here at Woodlands Church. It was, it was in the gym. I was sitting, I was somewhere in high school, and I was sitting in the gym listening to Pastor Brian preach a sermon on the book of Hebrews. I remember this pretty distinctively. And he was talking about one of the characters that the writer of Hebrews references, this guy named Melchizedek. And Brian was taking us through the story of Scripture and showing how Melchizedek was this image of who Jesus was. And so he went back to Genesis and where Melchizedek showed up and talked to Abraham. And then he went into Exodus and talked about the priesthood and, and how Melchizedek represented the priesthood. And then he went into Psalms where the psalmist is looking ahead to a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he, he took us into the, the Gospels and into the book of Hebrew. He, and there's this theme, this this line, this thread almost that stretched itself through Scripture. And I sat there as a 15-year-old listening to this with my mind just exploding at the size and the beauty and the complexity of Scripture. It was, it was like that 3D image. I'd been staring at these words my whole life, but for the first time, this, this image was just popping off of the page and Scripture was coming alive. Ever since then, as I've 
read and studied Scripture, I've been looking for that pop. Those moments when you're reading the Bible and it just comes alive because of something God is, is teaching us. And that's what we're going to be looking for this morning. Why does it do that? How does that work? And, and how should we think about this text? So we're starting a four-week series this morning titled, I Book. Um, the book is the Bible, and I represents four different foundational truths that we believe about what the Bible is. Four, four truths that teach us how we should approach this book, how, how, we, should, how we should revere it, and how we should read it. And incidentally, those all start with I. So that's I book, if that makes sense. So this morning, we're going to look at the doctrine or the teaching, the, the church teaching of the inspiration of Scripture. Now, there's a ton of different doctrines theology. There's a ton of different ideas around scripture or God that we could talk about. But, but I think inspiration, inspiration is so important. If you want to find out where someone sits in their view of who God is, if you want to discover how someone views this book, if you want a great starting question to, to, to figure out how someone approaches who God is, Ask them about their doctrine of inspiration. Say, hey, how do you think the Bible, what is the Bible? Tell me about the Bible. What do you think, how, how did the Bible come about? How was it written? The doctrine of inspiration is part of this foundational truth about what it means to be a Christian. So this morning we're going to look at what this doctrine is. Uh, just get a sense of the need for it and a definition. And then we're going to talk about the implications of inspiration, what it means. And then finally, at the end, we'll talk about uh, the action of the doctrine, what it does in our lives, what it does in our hearts. And that's really where this gets exciting, not just in an intellectual, theological way, but in a worshipful way, too, as we consider who God is. So first, what is it? What is inspiration? When we talk about inspiration today, when we use that word, we're usually talking about one of those light bulb moments, right? Uh, where, where something suddenly becomes clear for us. So I'm, I might go home and talk to my wife and be like, sweetheart, the thing you said last night, it just inspired me. And I went into work and I, and I made these changes and that was, that was fantastic. It made stuff make sense to me. Or maybe we're talking to a coworker and we're saying, you know, that stuff you said in the meeting, that was just inspired. That, that, was, that, was, that was right on. We talk about it today as this light bulb moment, but when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, we're not talking about this light bulb moment as much as rather the divine interplay that took place in the writing of the Bible between a human author and God himself. So, so talking about the doctrine of inspiration is talking about specific moment and a specific time and a specific way in which we got the Bible itself. And so I had a professor in college who used this definition. I think it spells out the doctrine well. It's a little heady, but I think it'll make sense, and we'll, we'll go through it together. It's on the back of your bulletins, but this is what uh, Dr. Todd Miles said. He said, inspiration— is the concurrent work. So that means it takes place at the same time. This is really where inspiration gets mysterious and miraculous, and, and we'll look at this word and what this means in a bit. But it's the concurrent work of a holy God and a fallen human, whereby the Holy Spirit so moved the human author that God got exactly what he wanted, his perfect word, without 
compromising or destroying the personality of the human author. There's something going on in this moment of inspiration where God is at work in a human author so that everything the human author produces in that moment of inspiration is exactly what God wants. But at the same time, it doesn't mess up who that human is. It doesn't change who that human is at all. It's this miraculous process. So what we need to do to start is to really understand uh, this foundational belief that when we talk about the author of Scripture, when we talk about this book, what is it, who wrote it, we really have to always be talking about two authors. We have to be talking about a, a human author, the person who penned the text. Scripture clearly points out that people like David and people like Moses and people like the sons of Korah and Peter and Paul and James, they're the human authors to this text. But we also have to talk about a divine author, the divine author, God himself. So we're going to spend some time looking at those two authors as we talk about what this means. And we'll start with the divine author. Scripture clearly claims to be written by God. There's a couple of important passages that help uh, parse through that for us. And the first one, probably the most foundational when we're talking about inspiration, is 2 Timothy uh, 3, 14 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Timothy 3. And this passage Paul, the, the author, the human author of 2 Timothy, is writing to Timothy, who's his mentee. He's, he's talking about how to lead the church in Ephesus. And, and he's encouraging Timothy to look back on his past and to remain firm in the foundation that Timothy was raised in. So he starts in verse 14 of chapter 3 saying, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned, Continue in what you firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's for Paul at this stage, that's the Old Testament. He's saying, Timothy, you've, you've known these texts, you're familiar with them, and they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Now, just a quick aside, but, but I love the implications there of what Paul is saying. He's saying, remember the Old Testament? Remember two-thirds of the Bible that we have right now? The Old Testament is able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. As Christians pursuing Christ, we, we need to be deep in the Old Testament too because it points us to who Christ is. But then he makes this statement in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now some of your translations might have the word inspired there. This is, this is the place in Scripture where the word inspired comes out. The, the Greek word is really this, this, this concept of breathing by God and out. So we might rather translate inspired as expired. All scripture is expired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, so Paul's making a claim here that, that all of scripture, and he's talking about the Old Testament, but we can apply it to the New Testament as well, went through this mysterious process of being breathed out by God. Well, what does that look like? Well, Peter gives us a little bit more foothold in 2 Peter. So turn over to 2 Peter. It's a couple of books deeper in the New Testament. Uh, 2 Peter, uh, starting in verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. This is Peter talking. He says, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word. Peter says we have the prophetic word. He's saying that we have the testimony of Scripture. 
to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So he's saying pay attention to Scripture, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul adding some clarity to the fact that God is the divine author of Scripture, but also some ambiguity, too. Just as Paul was saying Scripture is breathed out by God in that process, Peter's saying that there's something going on, that, that the Old Testament came about. Yes, it was written by men, but God was doing something in that process to get it to be what he wanted it to be. We actually see that taking place in the book of Jeremiah. This is kind of cool. In Jeremiah 1, we see some of this direct inspiration and how God sees this playing out in the call of Jeremiah. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 1, starting in verse 4. Now the word of God came to me, this is Jeremiah writing, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then I, Jeremiah, said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. The Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth. God touches Jeremiah's mouth. And we don't know if this was like a physical moment where Jeremiah is standing face to face with some sort of representation of God and, and he feels like, or this is a figurative language, but he touches his mouth and the Lord says to me, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. There's something going on here where God is clearly saying everything that comes out of Jeremiah's mouth as I ordain it is going to be my words in Israel. You should listen to Jeremiah's words because they're as if I am speaking to you. So first we see that the Bible definitely claims to be written by God. The, the, the New Testament authors of Scripture looked back and made the assumption that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that, that no prophecy came about by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible claims to be God's word for God's people for all time because the Bible claims to be written by God. And, and before we look at the human author, I, I want to address something too. I've heard people... After that's kind of spelled out, I've heard people say, Dave, that's ridiculous. You can't just write something's written by God and then expect people to believe that it's written by God. Like, Dave, if you write a letter to me and then sign it, God, and hand it to me, I don't believe that God wrote this. Self-claim carries no weight. You've probably heard that argument before. I, I think that argument makes some sense intellectually, but when you really kind of pull it apart, it, it doesn't hold a lot of water just to be honest, because self-claim carries a ton of weight if it's true. So for instance, if I write a letter to you and I sign it by Dave Bondison and I mail it to you, it is by me. It claims to be by me. It is by me because it's true. And so ultimately the, the question isn't, is it, the, the question isn't, does God claim to write the Bible? He does. 
The question isn't even, is that valid? It is. The question that we have to wrestle with is, is it true? Did God truly write Scripture? And, and to that point, I would point to the testimony of billions of Christians over the course of two millennium who have come into life-changing relationship with a God who desperately loves them because they've opened up the pages of Scripture, because they've seen that this book truly is written by God for their good and for his glory. And I would challenge you, if you're struggling with the, the divine author of Scripture, whether or not this was written by God, I would challenge you to start from a position where you assume that it is what it says it is. Take God at his word, test him and see if he will not be for you a redeemer and a savior. So we can affirm that God was involved in the writing of this book. We can affirm that God wrote it and not just the Bible contains only what God wanted, but that it contains everything that God wanted. That even though there's 66 different books and different types and different authors and genres and eras and personalities and, and occasions that take place in this book, we believe because of the divine author that scripture contains what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, everything necessary for life and godliness. That's what's in these pages. Everything necessary for life and godliness because of the divine author. But there's a second layer too because we can see in scripture that there's a distinct human author as well. And so many of the Psalms are attributed, they say, of David. Dave, King David wrote this. Or of the so sons of Korah. They were written by individuals. We can see the, the human author in writing styles. We can see Paul's writing style tracing through Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and the books of Timothy. We can see Peter's writing style. We can see John's writing style. There are phrases and concepts that John dwells on in the book of John that are repeated in the book of 1 John and 2 John that don't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And what's more, this is crazy, but we see the background and the personality of the authors, the history of the authors, the identity of the authors, affecting how they write. So when you look at the book of Luke and Acts that were written by Luke, Luke was a doctor and historian. And so he says, because of my background, because of my, 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 my bent, the way that I look at, look at the world, I'm going to write this gospel in a certain way. I'm endeavoring to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Matthew, because of his personality and because of where he lived, he was writing to a Jewish audience, and so he wrote his gospel in such a way to convince Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. The personality of the human author comes out in the writing of Scripture. So, so if we put these two things together, somehow we, we have the Holy Spirit involved, and we're supposed to develop some sort of trust in the Bible because the Bible is God's. He wrote it. And it's clear that human authors also were instead, or they were involved in the writing of it too, and their personalities coming to back. How do we bridge this gap between the two authors? We do that through the doctrine of inspiration. That's what this, this doctrine of inspiration does. It talks, it describes this meeting point between the human author and the divine author in the writing of Scripture. So what does it mean? If that's what it is, what does it mean? What are the implications of this definition? Well, ultimately, it means, this is the phrase I'm going to use, it means that there was a divine, miraculous partnership. There's a miraculous partnership in the writing of God's word. Uh, and to figure out really what it means, let's start by talking about what inspiration doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean that God just handed us his word. He didn't show up to Peter one day and say, here's the book of 1 Peter, write your name on it and send it to the churches. That's not how the, the Bible was written. It also doesn't mean that the Bible was dictated. God didn't show up to the human authors and say, write this, outside of a few circumstances like the Ten Commandments. God dictated the Ten Commandments. But outside of that, when Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, God did not dictate those words to him. And even to take this one step further, what doesn't inspiration mean? I think this is crazy. It doesn't mean, outside of a few instances, like maybe Jeremiah, it doesn't mean that the human authors were even aware that they were under the inspiration of the Spirit when they wrote their books. I'll give you two examples of, of places in Scripture where I don't think the author was aware they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The first is uh, 2 Timothy 4.13. Um, in 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul admits to forgetting his coat in Troas and asks his friend Timothy to go to Troas and to talk to a dude named Carpus and get his coat back. Now, I believe that if Paul knew that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that his words were going to be read for 2,000 years by Christ followers from every language on every continent, that he would have done a better job holding on to his coat. Or that he would have sent that as a separate memo. I don't imagine after uh, the letters was widely read and came to be known as inspired, Paul was like, God, why did you let me do that? What, what was going on? That's the first uh, reason that I, I don't think uh, the uh, writers knew that they were inspired. But, but more so, I think this concept that the authors wrote without necessarily knowing they were under the Spirit's inspiration is so important because it changes how we approach Scripture. Let me show you that by looking at one of my absolute favorite psalms. Throughout my life, whenever I have been in my relationship with God in a season of desert, in one of those dry patches where days turn into weeks, turns into months, and I, I just can't sense God's presence. I don't feel like he's speaking to me. I don't feel like he's there. Maybe I don't even feel like he's real. The, the psalm that I've consistently turned to more than any other psalm is Psalm 63. I just go to Psalm 63, and, and, and sometimes for days, for weeks, I'll just, this is all I'll do in my devotional time. I'll just read Psalm 63 over and over again, crying out, the words to God. And Psalm 63 is one of those attributed psalms. It's attributed to David. It says when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is why the doctrine of inspiration is so important. Because if I was to believe that God dictated the words of Psalm 63 to David, or, or if I were to believe that one day God showed up to David and he was like, listen, David, I'm looking at the Psalms that are written and they're pretty good, but it seems like we're missing one, David. We're missing a Psalm that really talks about searching for me when you can't really find me or you're desperate. Could you write something like that for me, David? I'm going to inspire you. Go ahead and write that. And then David wrote that. Well, that cheapens this Psalm. That, that kind of pulls the, the heart out of it. Same, honestly, if God just dictated this to David, it, it, it doesn't let me identify with this great man of God. But if we believe that there's some miraculous partnership, some concurrent work of the Holy Spirit that's going on here, 
And if we believe that, that at this moment in David's life, when, when he called out, he said, God, you are my God, and I don't feel like it right now, but I need you. And my soul, I, I, my soul longs for you. My soul thirsts for you. I feel like I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water, and I just, I just need you to pour out my, my presence on you because I'm so desperate for you. We can approach this text and believe on the one hand that this is a man after God's own heart who is going through this genuinely. Genuinely pleading with God. And on the other hand, we can acknowledge that this is God saying, this is how I want you to approach me because my Holy Spirit is at work in the writings of this text. If we can approach this psalm with both of these authors at work, we read it and we rejoice in who God is and his word for us. This doctrine adds such richness to scripture when we dig in and we say, what is the author saying? What is God saying in these passages? So we can see the Bible wasn't handed to us by God. It wasn't dictated. The writers didn't even necessarily know what was happening. And so at a, at a fundamental level, we're affirming that in the doctrine of inspiration, even in the writing of this book, there's a, a, a mystery. It's kind of a fuzziness, a divine fuzziness to how the Holy Spirit and the human author worked together. But, but I think this is, this is so, so cool. Because that fuzziness, that mystery, is something that we see elsewhere in Christianity, Right? And there's this, this mystery about the person of Jesus. Like, who, he's, he's fully God, but he's also fully human. Like, at the same time, he's both and and both. And he, he fits together like this. How does that, how does that make sense? And the Trinity, right? We affirm this doctrine called the Trinity, that there's three persons and one God eternally coexistent. Each person is fully God, but fully individual. Like, how does that, there's this divine fuzziness when we dive into the things of God. And here's where I think it gets, it gets a little crazy. As we continue talking about this, this process of the Spirit inspiring His Word, this is where it gets cool. Because we can see from Scripture that there are times when the human biblical author's personality and this concept of exactly what God wanted, like they didn't overlap. <laughs> we, we can see in Scripture that the writers of Scripture— we're not always perfect, of course. Peter's a great example. Peter wrote, in my opinion, maybe two of the greatest New Testament epistles, first and second Peter. And yet when you look in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the guards show up to take Jesus away, and Peter draws his sword, and he's like, you're not going to take Jesus away. And Jesus is like, Peter, Peter, that's not what I want. That's not what I want you to be doing. That's Peter's personality <laughs> and full display completely separated from what God wants. Uh, later, or even before that, maybe more profoundly, Matthew 16, 23, Peter is following Jesus. Jesus says he's going to go to the cross and die. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. That will never happen. May it never be so. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is the words that you're using, Peter, the, the way that your personality is playing out, Satan is involved. And so we see these, these moments in Peter's life, his personality, who he is, what he's doing. They're the farthest thing 
from exactly what God wants. And yet later we affirm in his life, Peter was going to write two books, first and second Peter, that would be exactly what God works. How does that make sense? What changed in that process? What changed from Peter sinning uh, under the influence of Satan, his personality causing him to do things that God doesn't want him to do, to perfectly living out God's plan? What changed? It wasn't age. It wasn't maturity. Certainly wasn't faithfulness. There's books of the Bible that were written by less faithful followers of God. Jonah comes to mind. What changed in Peter? I don't think anything necessarily changed. It's just the Holy Spirit decided to come alongside a fallen human and use that fallen human to affect the course of the church for generations. God decided to get involved. Somehow in God's power, he used fallen human agents to accomplish his perfect eternal plan. So, so let's put it together. Let's take a step back and let's put it all together. We've seen what it is. We, we've, we've seen that it describes the interaction of the human author and the divine author. Uh, we've seen what it means, but what are the implications of this? What's the point? I, I see three takeaways for us to wrestle with this morning as we think about God's word and the way that God works. First, I'm only going to touch on this lightly because we'll spend the next two weeks on it, but the first is that because the Bible is inspired, we can trust the Bible. We have an absolute trust in the Bible because we know that God was intimately involved in the writing of Scripture. We can have absolute trust in the text of Scripture. This is what God wanted us to have. When God says, live faithfully for me, and we say, what does that look like, God? God can say, look at the Bible because everything that's required for life and godliness is contained in these pages. So as we open it up, as we read it, as we study it, as we come to a truthful understanding of what this book tells us, we can faithfully submit our lives to it. If the Bible says it, if it, if it says it, we have, we have to do some work to understand what the Bible says, but when we understand what the Bible says, we can submit ourselves to it, trusting in God because he wrote it. And so we trust it. Secondly, though, and just this is, I think this is so cool. Building off of this concept of a divine author. Just take a step back and think about this with me. We have a book that was given to us by a holy and perfect God. A God who is everything that we're not. We're not infinite. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-loving. And we are each and every one of us, far from holy, far from perfect. But what does this book represent? The fact that we have it. 2,000 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, 2,000 years later, this book is being translated into more languages. It's going to more countries. It's being read by more people. It's changing more lives. What does that mean? It proves that God desperately wants to know you. The only reason this book would exist is if God desperately wanted to have a relationship with you. This proves that God has an agenda for the world. And that agenda is that you would know him. 
The second takeaway from this concept of inspiration is that God wants you to know him and his power and his love and his purpose and his plans for you. This, this book, which above all is about who God is, is, it's constantly going out in power. And the only incentive that God had to inspire its writing was so that you could meet him. So that you could find this mustard seed-sized faith and then read and dive into his word and learn more about who he is and hear about this incredible God so that that slight understanding of who he is could grow and expand and explode into soul-satisfying joy. The very fact that this book exists is proof that God wants a relationship with you. I've talked to people over the years, and they've said to me, Dave, Dave, I, I understand that you think God is real. I get it. I don't necessarily buy it. And I understand that you think God wants a relationship with me. But that, I don't get that. I just don't feel like that's true. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. In that moment, you don't need to feel like God wants a relationship with you. Because God has proven that he wants a relationship with you through the giving of his word. Just like we don't need to feel like God loves us because God proved that he loves us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love in that. So when our feelings go awry, when our feelings go off the rails, we can cling to this truth that Christ died for me and he loves me no matter how I feel. In the same way, when you feel like God doesn't want a relationship with you. If you're here this morning and you feel like God doesn't want to know you, or if you even feel like you don't want to know God, this book is proof that your feelings are wrong and God wants you. God wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants to pour out his love into your life. And he wants to save you and transform you. And so what are you waiting for? If you haven't yet taken a step of faith and said to God, God, even right now, God, I might not feel like you want me, but I believe and I understand and I trust that you want a relationship with me. I understand that I'm a sinner separated from you because of my sin, but your son Jesus paid the ultimate price for me on the cross, providing a way for me to be forgiven, to be made new. I want to come into relationship with you, God. If you haven't made that decision, put that stake in the ground. What are you waiting for? That forgiveness and that freedom is yours if you say yes. So first, we could trust the Bible. And secondly, we believe that God wants a relationship with us. And the third takeaway, this third result of the inspiration of Scripture, I think this is just the coolest. It was building off of the concept of the human author. Isn't it amazing that God works with fallen, sinful people to accomplish his perfect purpose? in the church and in the world for all time. He partners with people who don't have it all together in order to accomplish exactly what he wants. Writers of Scripture, we talked about them. Uh, we were talking about this concurrent work of God. What qualified the writers of Scripture to, to write Scripture? It wasn't their age. It wasn't their knowledge. It wasn't their faithfulness. It wasn't their sinlessness. It wasn't their knowledge of the Bible. It wasn't their spiritual maturity. It wasn't the length of time that they were in church. It was the fact that God wanted to use them, plain and simple. And the same is true for us today. 
They were just people willing to be used by God, and in their moments of quiet faithfulness, the Holy Spirit used them to shape the world. This is what God is in the business of doing. This is why we follow him. This is what the church is all about. It's not about just coming and hearing and learning, but it's about partnering with God and his cosmic plan to save the world. This is why we wake up in the morning, we roll out of bed, and we say, God, I don't know what today will hold, but allow me to be faithful and use me for your glory every step of the way. And so as you and I quietly pursue, a God who pursues us will trust in him. We'll know that he pursues us and we'll believe that he will change the world as we faithfully follow him. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you inspired the word to be written, that through this miraculous process, uh, you got exactly what you wanted, but you provided a way for us to know that you want us, that you want a relationship with us, for us to know that you want to use us. So God, may we be a church that pursues you. May we be people who want to be used by you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.